Chapter thirty one, part six of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, volume three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. Chapter thirty one Invasion of Italy, Occupation of Territories by Barbarians, part six. The personal animosities and hereditary feuds of the barbarians were suspended by the strong necessity of their affairs, and the brave Adolphus, the brother-in-law of the deceased monarch, was unanimously elected to succeed to his throne. The character and political system of the new king of the Goths may be best understood from his own conversation with an illustrious citizen of Narbonne, who, afterwards, in a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, related it to Sir Jerome, in the presence of the historian Aurisius. In the full confidence of valour and victory, I once aspired, said Adolphus, to change the face of the universe, to obliterate the name of Rome, to erect on its ruins the dominion of the Goths, and to acquire, like Augustus, the immortal fame of the founder of a new empire. By repeated experiments I was gradually convinced that laws are essentially necessary to maintain and regulate a well-constituted state, and that the fierce, untractable humour of the Goths was incapable of bearing the salutary yoke of laws and civil government. From that moment I proposed to myself a different objective of glory and ambition, and it is now my sincere wish that the gratitude of future ages should acknowledge the merit of a stranger, who employed the sword of the Goths, not to subvert, but to restore and maintain the prosperity of the Roman Empire. With these specific views, the successor of Alaric suspended the operations of war, and seriously negotiated with the imperial court a treaty of friendship and alliance. It was the interest of the ministers of Honorius, who were now released from the obligation of their extravagant oath, to deliver Italy from the intolerable weight of the Gothic powers and they readily accepted their service against the tyrants and barbarians who infested the provinces beyond the Alps. Adolphus, assuming the character of a Roman general, directed his march from the extremity of Campania to the southern provinces of Gaul. His troops, either by force or agreement, immediately occupied the cities of Narbonne, Thalouse, and Bordeaux, and though they were repulsed by Count Boniface from the walls of Marseilles, they soon extended their quarters from the Mediterranean to the ocean. The oppressed provincials might exclaim that the miserable remnant which the enemy had spared was cruelly ravished by their pretended allies. Yet some specious colours were not wanting to palliate or justify the violence of the Goths. The cities of Gaul which they attacked might perhaps be considered as in a state of rebellion against the government of Honorius. The articles of the treaty, or the secret instructions of the court, might sometimes be alleged in favour of the seeming usurpations of Adolphus, and the guilt of any irregular, unsuccessful act of hostility might always be imputed, with an appearance of truth, to the ungovernable spirit of a barbarian host, impatient of peace or discipline. The luxury of Italy had been less effectual to soften the temper than to relax the courage of the Goths, and they had imbibed the vices 
without imitating the arts and institutions of civilized society. The professions of Adolphus were probably sincere, and his attachment to the cause of the Republic was secured by the ascendant which a Roman princess had acquired over the heart and understanding of the barbarian king. Placidia, the daughter of the great Theodosius, and of Galla, his second wife, had received a royal education in the palace of Constantinople. But the eventful story of her life is connected with the revolutions which agitated the Western Empire under the reign of her brother Honorius. When Rome was first invested by the arms of Alaric, Placidia, who was then about twenty years of age, resided in the city, and her ready consent to the death of her cousin Serena has a cruel and ungrateful appearance, which, according to the circumstances of the action, may be aggravated or excused by the considerations of her tender age. The victorious barbarians detained, either as a hostage or a captive, the sister of Honorius. But while she was exposed to the disgrace of following round Italy the motions of a Gothic camp, she experienced, however, a decent and respectful treatment. The authority of John Andes, who praises the beauty of Placidia, may perhaps be counterbalanced by the silence, the expressive silence of her flatterers. Yet the splendour of her birth, the bloom of youth, the elegance of manners, and the dexterous insinuation which she condescended to employ, made a deep impression on the mind of Adolphus, and the Gothic king aspired to call himself the brother of the emperor. The ministers of Honorius rejected with disdain the proposal of an alliance so injurious to every sentiment of Roman pride, and repeatedly urged the restitution of Placidia as an indispensable condition of the treaty of peace. But the daughter of Theodosius submitted, without reluctance, to the desires of the conqueror, a young and valiant prince, who yielded to Alaric in loftiness of stature, but who excelled in the more attractive qualities of grace and beauty. The marriage of Adolphus and Placidia was consummated before the Goths retired from Italy, and the solemn, perhaps the anniversary day of their nuptials, was afterwards celebrated in the house of Ingenus, one of the most illustrious citizens of Narbonne in Gaul. The bride, attired and adorned like a Roman empress, was placed on a throne of state, and the king of the Goths, who assumed on this occasion the Roman habit, contented himself with a less honourable seat by her side. The nuptial gift, which, according to the custom of his nation, was offered to Placidia, constituted of the rare and magnificent spoils of her country. Fifty beautiful youths, in silken robes, carried a basin in each hand, and one of these basins was filled with pieces of gold, the other with precious stones of an inestimable value. Attalus, so long the sport of fortune and of the Goths, was appointed to lead the chorus of the hymeneal song, and the degraded emperor might aspire to the praise of a skilful musician. The barbarians enjoyed the insolence of their triumph, and the provincials rejoiced in this alliance, which tempered, by the mild influence of love and reason, the fierce spirit of their Gothic lord. The hundred basins of gold and gems, presented to Placidia at her nuptial feast, formed an inconsiderable portion of the Gothic treasures. 
of which some extraordinary specimens may be selected from the history of the successors of Adolphus. Many curious and costly ornaments of pure gold, enriched with jewels, were found in their palace of Narbonne, when it was pillaged in the sixth century by the Franks. Sixty cups, caps, or chalices, fifteen patterns or plates, for the use of the communion, twenty boxes or cases to hold the books of the Gospels, this consecrated wealth was distributed by the son of Clovis among the churches of his dominions, and his pious liberality seemed to upbraid some former sacrilege of the Goths. They possessed, with more security of conscience, the famous misorium, or great dish for the service of the table, of massy gold, of the weight of five hundred pounds, and of far superior value from the precious stones, the exquisite worksmanship, and the tradition that it had been presented by Aetius, the patrician, to Torismond, king of the Goths. One of the successors of Torismond purchased the aid of the French monarch by the promise of this magnificent gift. When he was seated on the throne of Spain, he delivered it with reluctance to the ambassadors of Dagobert, despoiled them on the road, stipulated, after a long negotiation, the inadequate ransom of two hundred thousand pieces of gold, and preserved the Missorium as the pride of the Gothic treasury. When that treasury, after the conquest of Spain, was plundered by the Arabs, they admired, and they have celebrated, another object still more remarkable, a table of considerable size, of one single piece of solid emerald, encircled with three rows of fine pearls, supported by three hundred and sixty feet of gems and massy gold, and estimated at the price of five hundred thousand pieces of gold. Some portions of the Gothic treasures might be the gift of a friendship, or the tribute of obedience, but the far greater part had been the fruits of war and rapine, the spoils of the empire, and perhaps of Rome. After the deliverance of Italy from the oppression of the Goths, some secret counsellor was permitted, amidst the factions of the palace, to heal the wounds of that afflicted country. By a wise and humane regulation, the eight provinces which had been the most deeply injured, Campania, Tuscany, Picenum, Samnium, Apollia, Calabria, Bratium, and Lucania, obtained an indulgence of five years. The ordinary tribute was reduced to one-fifth, and even that fifth was destined to restore and support the useful institution of the public posts. By another law, the lands which had been left without inhabitants or cultivation were granted, with some diminution of taxes, to the neighbours who should occupy, or the strangers who should solicit them, and the new possessors were secured against the future claims of the fugitive proprietors. About the same time, a general amnesty was published in the name of Honorius, to abolish the guilt and memory of all the individual offences which had been committed by his unhappy subjects, during the term of the public disorder and calamity. A decent and respectful attention was paid to the restoration of the capital. The citizens were encouraged to rebuild their edifices, which had been destroyed or damaged by hostile fire, and extraordinary supplies of corn were imported from the coast of Africa. The crowds, that so lately fled before the sword of the barbarians, were soon recalled by the hopes of plenty and pleasure. And Albinius, prefect of Rome, informed the court, 
with some anxiety and surprise, that, in a single day, he had taken account of the arrival of fourteen thousand strangers. In less than seven years, the vestiges of the Gothic invasion were almost obliterated, and the city appeared to resume its former splendour and tranquillity. The venerable matron replaced her crown of laurel, which had been ruffled by the storms of war, and was still amused in the last moment of her decay with the prophecies of revenge, of victory, and of eternal dominion. This apparent tranquillity was soon disturbed by the approach of a hostile armament from the country which afforded the daily subsistence of the Roman people. Heracleon, Count of Africa, who, under the most difficult and distressful circumstances, had supported, with active loyalty, the cause of Honorius, was tempted, in the year of his consulship, to assume the character of a rebel and the title of emperor. The ports of Africa were immediately filled with the naval forces, at the head of which he prepared to invade Italy, and his fleet, when it cast anchor at the mouth of the Tiber, indeed surpassed the fleets of Xerxes and Alexander, if all the vessels, including the royal galley and the smallest boat, did actually amount to the incredible number of three thousand two hundred. Yet with such an armament, which might have subverted or restored the greatest empires of the earth, the African usurper made a very faint and feeble impression on the provinces of his rival. As he marched from the port along the road which leads to the gates of Rome, he was encountered, terrified, and routed by one of the imperial captains. And the lord of this mighty host, deserting his fortune and his friends, ignominiously fled with a single ship. When Herculean landed in the harbour of Carthage, he found that the whole province, disdaining such an unworthy ruler, had returned to their allegiance. The rebel was beheaded in the ancient temple of memory, his consulship was abolished, and the remains of his private fortune, not exceeding the moderate sum of four thousand pounds of gold, were granted to the brave Constantius, who had already defended the throne, which he afterwards shared with his feeble sovereign. Honorius vowed, with supine indifference, the calamities of Rome and Italy, but the rebellious attempts of Attalus and Heraclean against his personal safety, awakened for a moment the torpid instinct of his nature. He was probably ignorant of the causes and events which preserved him from these impending dangers, and, as Italy was no longer invaded by any foreign or domestic enemies, he peaceably existed in the palace of Ravenna, while the tyrants beyond the Alps were repeatedly vanquished in the name and by the lieutenants of the son of Theodosius. In the course of a busy and interesting narrative, I might possibly forget to mention the death of such a prince, and I shall therefore take the precaution of observing, in this place, that he survived the last siege of Rome about thirteen years. The usurpation of Constantine, who received the purple from the legions of Britain, had been successful and seemed to be secure. His title was acknowledged from the walls of Antoninus to the columns of Hercules, and, in the midst of the public disorder, he shared the dominion and the plunder of Gaul and Spain with the tribes of barbarians, whose destructive progress was no longer checked by the Rhine or Pyrenees. Stained with the blood of the kinsmen of Honorius, he exhorted from the court of Ravenna, with which he secretly corresponded, 
the ratifications of his rebellious claims, Constantine engaged himself, by a solemn promise, to deliver Italy from the Goths, advanced as far as the banks of the Po, and, after alarming rather than assisting, his pusillanimous ally, hastily returned to the palace of Arles, to celebrate, with intemperate luxury, his vain and ostentatious triumph. But this transient prosperity was soon interrupted and destroyed by the revolt of Count Garontius, the bravest of his generals, who, during the absence of his son Constance, a prince already invested with the imperial purple, had been left to command in the provinces of Spain. For some reason, of which we are ignorant, Garontius, instead of assuming the diadem, placed it on the head of his friend Maximus, who fixed his residence at Tarragonia, while the active count pressed forwards, through the Pyrenees, to surprise the two emperors, Constantine and Constus, before they could prepare for their defence. The son was made prisoner at Vienna, and immediately put to death, and the unfortunate youth had scarcely leisure to deplore the elevation of his family, which attempted or compelled him sacrilegiously to desert the peaceful obscurity of the monastic life. The father maintained a siege within the walls of Arles, but these walls must have yielded to the assailants, had not the city been unexpectedly relieved by the approach of an Italian army. The name of Honorius, the proclamation of a lawful emperor, astonished the contending parties of the rebels. Garontius, abandoned by his own troops, escaped to the confines of Spain, and rescued his name from oblivion by the Roman courage which appeared to animate the last moments of his life. In the middle of the night, a great body of his perfidious soldiers surrounded and attacked his house, which he had strongly barricaded. His wife, a valiant friend of the nation of the Alani, and some faithful slaves, were still attached to his person, and he used, with so much skill and resolution, a large magazine of darts and arrows, that above three hundred of the assailants lost their lives in the attempt. His slaves, when all the missile weapons were spent, fled at the dawn of day, and Garontius, if he had not been restrained by conjugal tenderness, might have imitated their example, till the soldiers, provoked by such obstinate resistance, applied fire on all sides to the house. In this fatal extremity he complied with the request of his barbarian friend, and cut off his head. The wife of Garontius, who conjured him not to abandon her to a life of misery and disgrace, eagerly presented her neck to his sword, and the tragic scene which terminated by the death of the Count himself, who, after three ineffectual strokes, drew a short dagger and sheathed it in his heart. The unprotected Maximus, whom he had invested with the purple, was indebted for his life to the contempt that was entertained of his power and abilities. The caprice of the barbarians, who ravaged Spain, once more seated this imperial phantom on the throne, but they soon resigned him to the justice of Honorius, and the tyrant Maximus, after it had been shown to the people of Ravenna and Rome, was publicly executed. The general, Constantius was his name, who raised by his approach the siege of Arles, and dissipated the troops of Garontius, was born a Roman, 
and this remarkable distinction is strongly expressed by the decay of military spirit among the subjects of the empire the strength and majesty which were conspicuous in the person of that general marked him in the popular opinion as a candidate worthy of the throne which he afterwards ascended in the familiar intercourse of private life his manners were cheerful and engaging nor would he sometimes disdain in the license of convivial mirth to vie with the pantomimes themselves in the exercise of their ridiculous professions but when the trumpet summoned him to arms when he mounted his horse and bending down for such was his practice almost upon the neck fiercely rolled his large animated eyes round the field constantinius then struck terror into his foes and inspired his soldiers with the assurance of victory he had received from the court of ravenna the important commission of extirpating rebellion in the provinces of the west and the pretend emperor constantine after enjoying a short and anxious respite was again besieged in his capital by the arms of a more formidable enemy yet this interval allowed time for a successful negotiation with the franks and almany and his ambassador edobic soon returned at the head of an army to disturb the operations of the siege of arles the roman general instead of expecting the attack in his lines boldly and perhaps wisely resolved to pass the rhone and to meet the barbarians his measures were conducted with so much skill and secrecy that while they engaged the infantry of constantius in the front they were suddenly attacked and surrounded and destroyed by the cavalry of his lieutenant alphilus who had silently gained an advantageous post in the rear the remains of the army of edobic were preserved by flight or submission and their leader escaped from the field of battle to the house of a faithless friend who too clearly understood that the head of his obnoxious guest would be an acceptable and lucrative present for the imperial general on this occasion constantius behaved with the magnanimity of a genuine roman subduing or suppressing every sentiment of jealousy he publicly acknowledged the merit and services of alphilus but he turned with horror from the assassin of edobic and sternly intimated his commands that the camp should no longer be polluted by the presence of an ungrateful wretch who had violated the laws of friendship and hospitality the usurper who beheld from the walls of arles the ruin of his last hopes was tempted to place some confidence in so generous a conqueror he required a solemn promise for his security and after receiving by the imposition of hands the sacred character of a christian presbyter he ventured to open the gates of the city but he soon experienced that the principles of honour and integrity which might regulate the ordinary conduct of constantius were superseded by the loose doctrines of political morality the roman general indeed refused to sully his laurels with the blood of constantine but the abdicated emperor and his son julian were sent under a strong guard into italy and before they reached the palace of ravenna they met the ministers of death at a time when it was universally confessed that almost every man in the empire was superior in personal merit to the princes whom the accident of their birth had seated on the throne a rapid succession of usurpers regardless of the fact of their predecessors 
still continued to arise. This mischief was peculiarly felt in the provinces of Spain and Gaul, where the principles of order and obedience had been extinguished by war and rebellion. Before Constantine resigned the purple, and in the fourth month of the siege of Arles, intelligence was received in the imperial camp that Jovinus had assumed the diadem of Mentz in the upper Germany, at the instigation of Gore, king of the Alani, and of Gontarius, king of the Burgundians, and that the candidate on whom they had bestowed the empire advanced with a formidable host of barbarians from the banks of the Rhine to those of the Rhone. Every circumstance is dark and extraordinary in the short history of the reign of Jovinus. It was natural to expect that a brave and skilful general, at the head of a victorious army, would have asserted in a field of battle the justice of the cause of Honorius. The hasty retreat of Constantius might be justified by weighty reasons, but he resigned without a struggle the possession of Gaul, and Dardanus, the praetorian prefect, is recorded as the only magistrate who refused to yield obedience to the usurper. When the Goths, two years after the siege of Rome, established their quarters in Gaul, it was only natural to suppose that their inclinations could be divided only between the Emperor Honorius, with whom they had formed a recent alliance, and the degraded Attalus, whom they reserved in their camp for the occasional purpose of acting the part of a musician or a monarch. Yet, in a moment of disgust, for which it is not easy to assign a cause or a date, Adolphus connected himself with the usurper of Gaul, and imposed on Attalus the ignominious task of negotiating the treaty, which ratified his own disgrace. We are again surprised to read that, instead of considering the Gothic alliance as the firmest support of his throne, Jovinus upbraided in dark and ambiguous language the officious importunity of Attalus, that, scorning the advice of his great ally, he invested with the purple his brother Sebastian, and that he most imprudently accepted the service of Sarus, when that gallant chief, the soldier of Honorius, was provoked to desert the court of a prince, who knew not how to reward or punish. Adolphus educated among a race of warriors, who esteemed the duty of revenge as the most precious and sacred portion of their inheritance, advanced with a body of ten thousand Goths to encounter the hereditary enemy of the house of Balti. He attacked Sarus at an unguarded moment, when he was accompanied only by eighteen or twenty of his valiant followers. United by friendship, animated by despair, but at length oppressed by multitudes, this band of heroes deserved the esteem without exciting the compassion of their enemies. And the lion was no sooner taken in the toils, than he was instantly dispatched. The death of Sarus dissolved the loose alliance which Adolphus still maintained with the usurpers of Gaul. He again listened to the dictates of love and prudence, and soon satisfied the brother of Placidia, by the assurance that he would immediately transmit to the palace of Ravenna the heads of the two tyrants. Jovinus and Sebastian. The king of the Goths executed his promise without difficulty or delay. The helpless brothers, unsupported by any personal merit, were abandoned by their barbarian auxiliaries. And the short opposition of Valentia was excapated by the ruin of one of the noblest cities of Gaul.
The emperor, chosen by the Roman senate, who had been promoted, degraded, insulted, restored, again degraded, and again insulted, was finally abandoned to his fate. But when the Gothic king withdrew his protection, he was restrained, by pity or contempt, from offering any violence to the person of Attalus. The unfortunate Attalus, who was left without subjects or allies, embarked in one of the ports of Spain in search of some secure and solitary retreat. But he was intercepted at sea, conducted to the presence of Honorius, led in triumph through the streets of Rome or Ravenna, and publicly exposed to the gazing multitude on the second step of the throne of his invincible conqueror. The same measure of punishment with which, in the days of his prosperity, he was accustomed of menacing his rival, was inflicted on Attalus himself. He was condemned, after the amputation of two fingers, to a perpetual exile in the Isle of Lippery, where he was supplied with the decent necessaries of life. The remainder of the reign of Honorius was undisturbed by rebellion, and it may be observed that, in the space of five years, seven usurpers had yielded to the fortune of a prince, who was himself incapable either of counsel or of action. End of chapter 31, part 6